Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. All right, welcome to episode 125 of the Whiskey and Whitetails podcast. I am your host, Gus. I'm Matt. And this week, we have part two of our ancient archery series. We'll be getting into what happened to archery when gunpowder was invented, the impact that that had on the future trajectory of archery, how various world... Wars and conflicts impacted archery, and much, much more about archery in the United States. Plus a little bit about uh, a recent barrel pick. Yeah. So stay tuned. What's up? How are you, man? Doing good. How are you? Good. Had a good trip? It was. It was a great trip. Yeah? Yeah. Flying uh, flying private. You know, that's how we do now. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny, man, because it looks a certain way yeah. on, like, social media. But oh, for sure it does. The reality is not. <laughs> yeah. No. It's uh, it's funny, man. We landed in Lexington, which is crazy because we, the weather, right? So there's, I lear- I've been learning a lot since I've been flying with them. Because I just ask questions the whole time, so that's the kind of person I am. But uh, like he's not instrument rated, so he he can only fly in what's called. Uh, I could be butchering this, but I'm pretty sure it's called it's VFR, Visual Flight Rules. Yeah, I think you're correct. So he can fly in that as long as he can see. So he can't fly in clouds legally, right? Like he could, but he you know he's got to get his rating, his rating for that, yeah. right? So and for those that don't understand what that means, what what he's saying is that being qualified to fly with instruments is essentially flying in conditions where you really can't see. You're using yeah. just your instrumentation to to guide the aircraft. Which, like, if you think about a cloud being at four thousand feet, right? So if it's cloudy from four thousand to eight thousand feet, and you're they're flying in the clouds, you can't see anything, right? Um, it's not such a big deal on the East Coast because you can drop down below that 4,000 feet and you can see. Sure. But, like, if you're flying in the mountains and you yeah. drop down into the clouds and there's a mountain that's 7,500 feet high. <laughs> that's a problem. Yeah, you're, you're, you're going to have a bad day. But, he, um, yeah, so we kind of just we hung out till the sky cleared. And then once we started to see openings in the clouds where he could shoot through one of those openings, he, you know, it was like, oh, it's go time. Let's go right now. Yeah. And so we loaded up and took off. And uh, he aimed for a cloud and just, like, pulled – not G's, you know, but he's pulling pretty hard. Yeah. And we, we like zipped straight up through this opening in the clouds, and then we got up above the clouds. Nice. And it was smooth sailing. We had, um, there was like a weird, I don't know how to describe it. It's like a layer at, I think we were at 7,500 feet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause uh, flying east to west, you got to be at odd numbers. And okay. then flying west to east, you're at even numbers. So it's 7,500 or 95 or. Man, I'm saying that backwards. It's 8,500, so even flying west. Okay. And then, yeah, that's right. So, <laughs> anyway, so when we got up there, there was like this weird layer. You couldn't really see any. It felt like you were in a cloud, but you weren't because yeah. the cloud never got closer. But you just couldn't see that far in the distance. And then flying over the mountains, he was explaining to me that the wind comes off the mountains. They're called mountain waves. Mm-hmm. 
pretty wild, dude. Like in an airplane when you hit turbulence and you know, you don't really drop that far, but in, in a smaller plane, I mean it's like roller coasters sometimes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, so is is it gonna like turbulence won't make you wreck, right? And he's like, Oh no, it, it can, yeah. And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean I'm not really worried about it, but it's like you're you you're not expecting that yeah. drop. So when you drop like that, your body freaks out a little bit. Sure. Yeah. And then it didn't help that he had gotten a rock chip on the blade before we left. <laughs> and he's like, I don't know what to do. He's like, I'm going to see if this guy will file it out. And I'm like, file it out? And the guy, like, comes in there with a with a file like he got at Lowe's. Oh, and he's on the blade just, like, blending this crack. Oh, yeah. Okay. So this is where you sent me that sound bite. Yeah. yeah the guy's like, yeah. I'll play, I'll play the yeah, sound play bite. Yeah, play the sound bite. Because you sent it to me. I was like, oh, he's he's exaggerating. Because, you know, if, if you know Matt, Matt can, can exaggerate a little bit every now and then. Yeah. It's, you know, Especially to make a story To better. make a story, of course. Right. And so he's he's talking about this guy filing it out. And the guy's like, yeah. The guy said it'll just if it gets too much vibration, it'll rip the engine out. And I'm thinking to myself, uh, all right. Well, listen, here you go. <laughs> and then, then lose the tip of the wing. If it comes off, the engine will come out. <laughs> really? Because of the vibration? Yeah, that, that much vibration. And then that sound is him running a file over the blade. But uh, he's like, and, I, and it makes sense because it, like, if it's you know spinning at four thousand RPMs and you lose half the half the rotor. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it makes total sense that it would just vibrate so hard it would rip the motor out of the wing. It's wild. But I was like, so can you land after that? And I'm not really thinking about the aerodynamics of it. Because they keep telling you, like, oh, planes are bulletproof. They want to fly. They're, they're, like, yeah. autopilot's easy. You just throw an autopilot on these crews. And I was like, oh, so, like, can you land? And he's like, oh, no, you're, 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 you're done. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. Oh, good. Thanks for and then, then he's like, well, that up. I got to spin the blade over, and I got to remove a little bit of weight from the other side so that it's balanced. And I'm like, so... You, like you get to balance it. He's yeah. like, no, I just I know how much I took off on this side. I'm gonna take that much off on the other side. I'm like, so we're just eyeballing this. All right, cool. <laughs> but he did. He like he was like, all right, uh, you're good. And and he was like, all right, yeah, I'll paint it. You know, couple in a few days, just so it's, it's all yeah. black again. And that's weird. <laughs> so man. I have that in my mind. You yeah, know? yeah. But it's pretty wild, dude, to leave Somerville because I drove up to Somerville. Yeah, it's a like a 45 minute Half drive day trip for you. <laughs> yeah, and then two hours later, we're in Lexington. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Which, I mean, you know, it's an eight-hour drive, and then if you fly it, it's at least six hours of just waiting and well, yeah, boarding. I, you and know, four hours, an hour getting to the airport yeah. early, an hour waiting, and then your two-hour flight, and then 45 minutes. Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it adds up so much. But you get the ease of just hopping in and out of a regional airport. Yeah. Where'd you guys land? You guys obviously didn't land at the big airport. We did. You did? No in shit. Lexington, yeah. Wow. But they only fly out in the mornings. There's really nobody there. We landed and taxied straight in. There's some jets sitting there and, like, you know, rich people. Of course. And uh, which is wild because I think the average person doesn't know, like the average person that owns a jet, they probably yeah. aren't like, oh, that's a hundred thousand dollar plane or that's a two million dollar plane, you know. So they just they kind of like head nod at you, like, it's yeah. nice, right? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we got in a got a rental car, which is funny because when I called to schedule it, he was like, oh yeah, um, we got we just got some new Escalades in. You know, if this stuff's and I was like, no, 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 something cheap. I was like, I'm, I'm not, it's not my plane. Like, I'm just, it's a friend of mine. Yeah. And he's like, cheap. Okay. He's like, yeah, I got you. And he's like, and your birthday's coming up. So I'll, you know, we'll, we'll give you a complimentary upgrade. So it was a Toyota Camry. Okay. It was $500 for three days. Jesus. Yeah. It cost as much as the fuel did. That's to a fly there. <laughs> so it was a thousand dollar trip. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. But, you know, flying happens. private. Yeah. Flying private. But, uh, yeah, it was cool. Got to hang out with Rocco and, and, um, how's Rocco doing? Yeah, you know. Yeah. It's Rocco. It's Rocco. He's doing good. Rock, rocking and rolling. Yeah, keeping his chin up, and uh, he got some new implants in there, keep his body running right. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Glad to hear. Glad to see he was doing doing well and made the uh, made the trip. The uh, So st you guys went to Starlight. Yeah, so I might as well tell this since we're talking the story. We're riding yeah. up there. I'm following okay. in, in the oh, rental yeah. car. That's right. And so I see... This, there's just visor lights, like, uh, you know, your visor in your car. So yeah. red and blue, I see in the corner, like, of a charger come flying up behind me. And the siren was like, wee, wee. it was very quiet. Yeah. But I saw it, and I got, got over, and the guy had, like, Louisville, like, University of Louisville plates, mm -hmm. which was odd. Yeah. You know? And uh, he gets behind Rocco, but Rocco's truck's so big, the guy was, like, on his ass. And I, Rocco didn't see him. And so the guy, like, starts slide to side, side to side, and Rocco pulls off the road, like, into the yeah. side, like, the, I don't know. Shoulder? Or the shoulder, the, yeah. yeah. Like, kicking up rocks and dirt and everything, and then that car blasts by, 
and uh, I didn't think much of it. And then as we're driving through Louisville, like you can kind of look over there and you're like, you can see like activity. Yeah. You know, and we get to Indiana to Starlight and we're in the parking lot and Rocco's like, there was a mass shooting in Louisville. And, it, and he's, it, you know, it was the guy at the bank and, and all that. And he's just reading it out, like what the police, because like, he's got yeah. that police app or whatever. And he's just reading out what's going on. It's like, wow, that's crazy that we were right, just right happened there. to be right there. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, like saw units responding to it. And, but there's helicopters all day long. And yeah, but we ended up driving by it and the whole road was, you know, shut down. Shut down. But it's wild, man. Also, if you go to Louisville with the intentions of going to distilleries, they're all pretty much closed on Mondays. So lesson learned. Are they really? Yeah. Sunday, Monday, they're closed. Huh. Didn't know that. Yeah. It's good to know for planning trips. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how I, that's, I don't know how all the times we've been there that I've, I've missed that. I don't know. Either. I guess we've left on typically left on a Sunday or yeah, Monday. I so. so I think that's probably what most people do. Yeah. That's probably why they close because they don't yeah. get any damn business. Probably. <laughs> but yeah, went Starlight. We did a pick there. That was a really cool experience. Uh, we got to walk around and, Get a full tour, and we tasted all kinds of stuff, and then uh, we got four cigar blends to pick from, which nice. is, um, for those that don't know, it's an Ambirana wood. It's from Brazil mainly. It's in Argentina, Bolivia, Paraguay. Mm-hmm. And uh, it creates, like, this wild cinnamon-ish flavor. Mm-hmm. It's hard to explain, um, and, and there's, like, a lot of mint on it. Interesting. But, um, we got four different ones to was try. That, was that – was the – yeah, a brain fart there. What I was what I was trying to ask uh, was the choice to to look at that type of barrel, or was that just what they had available for picks at oh, this no. time? You're not nobody gets that. That was oh, okay. that, that was like special treatment. Got it. Okay. Yeah, the cigar blends are pretty hard to cool because there's not a lot of that wood here. It's a rare species of wood. So. Yeah. Well, given the some the clientele you were with, I'm not surprised. Yeah, yeah it was Watch Hill Proper, which we don't we've never heard of them. You should look them up. They're in Louisville. It's a restaurant. They have the largest whiskey collection in the like I think in the states, probably in the world. It's pretty substantial. Like the bar is unbelievable. It's two. They're what? What would you say? Like thirty feet wide and fifteen feet tall, maybe. And there's two of them full of whiskey. Yeah, and that's just what you can see. They have an entire like stock of yeah. a lot of what you can see behind. The, it's, just, it's wild. Man. Yeah. They have like sliding ladders to climb up. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's up like a library. Behind. Yeah, it's pretty It's pretty wild. It's a legit whiskey library. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so they, it was fun. We we picked, I think everybody, I was, everybody was kind of like barrel one and barrel three were the best. Mm-hmm. Like two, I thought was, there was no real nose on it. It was like insignificant. Okay. And then four, some of the stuff had, not jalapeno, the spice, like you could never use this as a, flavor profile because people are going to hear jalapeno and be like, ugh, but it had jalapeno in it. Interesting. Um, like a good, in a good way. It was very nice. It was like an earthy jalapeno taste. And, um, then we had pizza and some, you know, we just ate a bunch of shit quesadillas. I mean, (laughs) and then they had us into their lobby. Everybody was drunk until we ate. It was funny. Like the walk up to the food, everybody's like, you know, and then you could see like the food depression setting in after, and then we go into the conference room and taste again, and that barrel same that same one but different order. Okay, and we all pretty much decided on that, that barrel number two that none of us liked. Really? So just how much your palate will change after eating. That's wild. Yeah. Which I you know now I'm like, did we screw up? But so, so as you guys are tasting, are you guys taking notes and talking oh, amongst yeah. each other? Mm-hmm. Okay. There's twelve of us: six yeah. from Watcho Proper and six for Campiro. Interesting. Because I because I I wondered if 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 everyone was left to their own their own opinion and their own notes and made us like without discussing and imparting, you know, because you know how well, it that's kind of like, what it was like. We all tasted through and then like oh, I like this one, oh, I don't like that one, or okay. this or that, and then in the end, everybody was like one and three, and then here we pretty much all picked number one again, which was barrel two. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty cool, man. It's fun. It's uh, it's fun. It's fun to play with your palate, man, and watch watch things change. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also funny to think of how much we've learned. Like, we've been we've been drinking whiskey forever, but now that we're, we're like, yeah. like a bourbon steward and just, you know, teaching classes and all this, how much we've learned, it's like you kind of forget how much people don't know. Yeah, that's, that's a, um, I find myself, and I've, I've, I'm not a, and neither of us are like snobs about no. it. Like, it's, it's, I don't expect yeah. 99% of people to, to know much about whiskey or bourbon, but, um, you know, we see it a lot and just daily interactions with people. Um, 
and you just kind of smile. It's not worth the long explanation of no. like you know. Why well, I, don't, I don't know about I don't know whiskey, but I like bourbon. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah, me too. Yeah, same. It's just like uh, it's good stuff. I'm yep. just not. <laughs> it's surprising how many times we get told sometimes. that. Like, do you like whiskey? I'm like, no, but I like bourbon. I'm like, oh, oh, very good. Okay, cool. I'll uh, let's drink bourbon then. Yeah, I'll, we won't have any whiskey this time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, whiskey whiskey messes me up, but I can do bourbon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Why? Well, I, I didn't know. I had no idea. <laughs> All right. Cool. Um, did you want to talk about your upcoming trip this weekend? I thought you were, you, you had some um, queued up you were going to play. We don't have to though. It's not a big deal. Yeah, I mean we can. It's not. It's not. It's up to you. You decide. So well, Southern lore. Why don't we do this and then if there's time, if there's time, we'll we'll discuss. Oh yeah, this we're weekend's about, trip. Okay, sounds good. Yeah. So uh, just to prime it a little bit, last week, last episode. If you haven't listened to that one, uh, you may want to pause this. Go check that one out. We broke down sort of a. An ancient overview, if you will, uh, or an overview of ancient archery, starting all the way back in the Mesolithic. Mesolithic period and discussing how civilizations and parts of the world developed and grew in their technology and techniques and hunting methods um, centered around archery all the way up through, uh, where did we end, uh, talking about Genghis Khan mm-hmm. and, and his empire. So this week, what do we have? Well, it's funny because as I was looking I was looking at stuff for this week, and uh, I found, like, an article where they were talking about kind of the the whole thing, mm-hmm. and they were talking about uh, 13,000 years ago and these cave paintings and stuff, and uh, one of the comments on the top of it was like, the Earth's not that old, so. Nice. And I was like, okay. <laughs> what? You're right. All right. Uh, it's definitely older than that. Uh, okay. So, yeah, and this will be part two. This is the final part of of this uh, series. Yeah. Yeah. So we were going to get into kind of the black powder time frame. So that's back in the ninth century and it eventually spread to the world, but it all started in China, <laughs> China, China. So black powder also known as gunpowder. It uh, actually led to the decline of archery for warfare and for hunting. But when it was first developed, it was used in like the, traditional replacement of firearms so it it was like gunpowder and they would shoot arrows out of it yeah and that was like you know okay so one, one use of it was the they're, they're called fire arrows in ancient china and there's a small tube of gunpowder attached to the shaft when the shaft hits the target the gunpowder would ignite and cause a small explosion so they were shooting arrows with like nice bombs attached exploding to arrows yeah that's pretty sweet which would be pretty cool can you imagine being on the receiving end of that for the first time? Yeah. Like it's never been seen before. It lands next to you and you're like, what is this fizzing thing? And I'm done. Yeah. And Sorry, folks. I'm out. Yeah. That would suck. <laughs> Pack up my arrows. I'm leaving. That would be some of the first um, instances of like, well, no, because they, I guess they had catapults and stuff. People were used to limbs being blown off. I yeah, guess. I'm sure. Yeah. Maybe. But it still was probably shocking. It's yeah, loud, it, you know. I'm sure it had to be a, because you, you know, it wasn't just one guy doing it at once. It was yeah. like. All right, here comes their barrage and is like, you know, several hundred or several thousand of these yeah. things. Well, think about that. Like that was the that was when hearing loss kind of started in warfare. It was in the ninth century. <laughs> what a weird thing. To <laughs> no one had to worry about hearing protection no. until then. I wonder if they had like hearing protection back in the ninth century like, when they started using these things. I don't know. Because I mean, before that, I mean, think about warfare before that. You could hear each other breathing and yelling and, and moaning and fighting. And then when they started the introduction of gunpowder, like you can hear shit. Yeah. It's the war became silent at that point. Well, to the to the participants, yeah, it's pretty loud, I think. But yeah. but yeah, yeah, it's crazy. Uh, then we moved into the Middle Age here, where yep. fire, they had something called handguns. Imagine that H A N D G O N N E S, and it was uh, used in conjunction with archery. But these weapons were loaded with gunpowder and a lead ball, be fired from the same position as an archer. So it was basically the archers would. Loose, and then these hand goons would yeah. uh, would take off. But it's everything I've read. It's like I want to make sure it's important that we note that gunpowder and archery were not typically used together. Yeah, it, it was specific circumstances with specialized weapons, and gunpowder kind of took over. Man, one of the main reasons of the decline of archery was the increased range and power that yep. firearms bring. Yeah, um, which made them way more effective than bows and arrows, especially for hunting, but also in warfare. But they also required less skill. 
making it right access to a lighter, you know, much larger range of people. Yeah, so you could get you could fire you could get a bunch of dummies, you yeah, know, in, in, together to stand in a line, and, together. enlisted, stand in a line, and walk yeah. towards each other and pull and triggers. Pull triggers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you don't got to teach them about aero flight, and, and they did that for a long time. Yeah, yeah, for up until I mean, past the Civil War. Yeah, what a crazy way to fight. Can you imagine? Oh, if they did that today, they'd give everybody AR-15s. It's the exact same thing, and it's just single single shot, though. The bloods would, the, the rivers would be red with blood. <laughs> oh, man. It's, this does not sound fun. No, I don't, I'm not interested. <laughs> which, which is funny because, like, in the Revolutionary War, when they had, the like, the marauders running around and hiding in the woods and everything, and they were like, this is not gentleman warfare. Yeah. You know, the Brits were pretty pissed about that. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's not fair that you're shooting officers from the wood line. When we're standing in an open field. It's not fair that you're being sneaky. <laughs> yeah. We're supposed to know you have a thousand people, I have a thousand people, and we just see who stuff's standing at the end. It's we insane. did. I just put 500 on this side, 500 on that side, and snuck another 250 on that side. Yeah. And before you know it, there's a hundred of them behind you, too. Yeah. That's yeah. funny. But uh, just because, you know, just because Black Powder took over in terms of warfare and, and, uh, and hunting due to its, uh, you know, increased efficacy, basically, it doesn't mean that it stopped being practiced, right? I mean, it's yeah. obviously, it's still here today. Right. Um, and J- Japanese have a sort of a, an artistic form of, of archery that is still yeah popular, was popular then and still used today. Right, and it's it's kind of went from warfare into more of a recreational activity yeah. and kind of sport. But, yeah, the Jap- the Kyudo, Kyoto, probably Kyoto, Kyudo? Kyudo? I don't, I don't know either. But it's still a part of their cultural, spiritual practices. Yeah. It's, but it's a martial art, basically, of archery. So it's kind of like it starts in the samurai tradition. And the focus was not just on hitting the target, but also developing proper form. You know, yeah. anything with any kind of martial art, it's it's all about the technique. I've watched some videos of it. It's pretty um, – you've probably seen it without realizing you've seen it. They, yeah. they wear these very traditional mm-hmm. baggy sort of pants. Um, the women wear, I think, a, a dress, and then they have this sort of – tight vest that keep on their upper body that keeps it away from the bow. And then it's like this whole like meditative, like kneeling mm-hmm. and then you stand up and there's a, there's a process you work through all the way leading up to the, uh, to pulling the bow back. And the, the process of pulling the bow is very like deliberate. And, yep. and I dare say it's pretty like it's, it's, it's pretty to watch them go through the motion of, of pulling, pulling mm-hmm. back the bow. It's, um, it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's cool. And the the bow too. It's called a yumi, and it's made of bamboo. But they're, they're typically over six feet in length, yeah, which is big. which is pretty crazy. And and they make the feathers out of, uh, or the uh, excuse me, the, the arrows out of bamboo as well. Yeah, yep. So it's like a whole bamboo contraption. But it, yeah, it's done in like a formal setting, and it's ritualized movements and preparations. And then the goal is just to hit the target, but it's also to achieve a state of meditative concentration. Right. So where where the archer and the target become one thing, as opposed to just going to the range and shooting an arrow, it's like you become the bow, yeah. You become the arrow, and then you fly into the target and become the target. Yeah. It's it's supposed to be. I think it'd be fun. I mean, peaceful. You know, it seems it seems relaxing. Yeah, um, for like a therapy. And I would imagine that there's some 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 sort of uh, for the the process and the steps that there's some sort of like thing you're you're t- saying to for yourself sure. or meditative thing that you're discussing or thinking about um seems like a great way to just escape yeah yeah but it's highly respected just and it's it's considered an art form in japan yep. and it's it's still practiced today yep. and um I, I could totally see it being you know like a good way to escape because sometimes we'll do it you know we'll just go to the that archery range on john's island and just yeah. just to shoot some arrows yeah it's fun you know and so i think if you were to center yourself and and just really be involved in the moment. It probably is yeah. super meditative. Yeah, the pictures and videos I've seen, it's like they they look like almost like you um, you know the the feel of a of a dojo or yeah. a you know a, a very it, it seems quiet you know mm-hmm. other than the sound of arrows hitting a target. Um, it just seems very peaceful, right? So it's uh, there's not a whole lot from this point forward in archery. I mean, we we talked last week about. The French and the middle cutting the middle finger off used for archery, but it, a lot of it kind of just it became a sport more yeah. than anything else. Um, but we're going to roll into America 
because of the native people that were here. And uh, But archery has been very important in a lot of different roles in America, both as a tool and as a recreational activity. But one of the earliest recorded uses of archery in America was by the Native American tribes. But they used uh, bows and arrows for both hunting and warfare, and the archaeological evidence suggests that Native Americans have been using bows for thousands of years before the arrival of Europeans. But um, Native American archery is very distinct from other ancient cultures in several ways because, you know, they didn't talk to each other. So they, they developed this all on their own, Yeah, more to say. So it's, it's pretty interesting that they came up with the same thing, mm-hmm. you know? It's like... They're different, but they, it's like the yeah. same concept, and they developed it all on their own. Or maybe there was an ancient civilization that taught well, them. Well, and there's, and, and I was going to say, you know, if you when you start talking to the people who've done a lot of research in like the Clovis points and some of the mm-hmm. areas where they, where they have found those uh, in relation to ancient, um, other ancient civilizations in North America, uh, there's there's more and more belief or evidence to show that nomadic tribes from you know long long. I don't even know the, the proper date, but may have made a cross from yeah. other continents to the United States by a land bridge that no longer exists. Yeah, this is 11,800 years ago in the Younger Dryas. Which there you is go. Very fascinating. Yes. There's a documentary TV show called Ancient Civiliz- or Ancient Apocalypse. Oh, okay. It's on Netflix. It's very fascinating. Oh, I didn't know it covered... Th- 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 I had a different view of what that show was, I guess. No, yeah, he, he, it basically, like, it discusses that all these people emerged from the ice age with the same kind of way of living. Yeah. And it's, and they all had, which I found fascinating. They all had this kind of like box. It looks like a purse, like a a handle and a box. And from Egypt to China to America, everywhere, there's carvings of a figure showing up with this box. And it it was said to be the key to the universe and like how, Mm -hmm. you know, technology or whatever. Uh, It's just fascinating that they all have the exact same shape. Interesting. So there's, I don't know. It's interesting stuff. I I find it very fascinating. I mean, there's no way to prove anything, but no. But it's 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 cool to look at this stuff and think back about you know. In this particular case, I think that the case is made that they made these 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 people traveled from I guess what's now modern day Russia mm-hmm. over across to like Alaska and came down you yeah. know through there. And there was arguments about oh they wouldn't have done that. They would it have been on foot and it had been too cold. But you know, there's there's more and more stuff being learned about climate then and and. What even what things were like before it got cold? Yeah. yeah, and so it's 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 crazy to think, you know, as we learn about this, and 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 you realize, uh, as as you look back in history, like ninety percent of the Earth's history is unrecorded. Yeah, it's lost knows. forever. Nobody knows. So we're yeah. trying to figure shit out <laughs> based on what we can find now, and there's no telling how far back it goes, and the things that we'll never ever know. Well, if you look at it now, like how much is actually written down and carved into stone today? Pretty much nothing. No. So if if we were to get World War Three kicked off and there's nukes everywhere and it and it decimated the the world into potentially an ice age type situation, all the everything that's happened from like what the 80s until now would pretty much be gone. Like that, all this, all yeah. the mechan, all the uh, electronic information would yeah. be gone. Uh, the, uh, you know, I know we have our history and things, um, things about the planet are, are saved digitally and, and put away in, yeah. in a, a number of different vaults around the world. We have uh, uh, <clears throat> the name of the, I can't remember the name of the vault that has like seeds. Yeah, the one stuff, in Norway. Yeah, stored for yeah. like every possible like you know they spent years and years to c- continue to find and, right. and get just in case that that's ever needed. Um, but yeah, man, like, but even then that could have existed 11,500 years ago and all the people that knew about it are dead. It's true. And so that thing's so just that, sitting there's there another, another vault somewhere sitting yeah. over there full of seeds that, oh man, that'd be wild. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> They're so, bringing back dinosaurs. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, back to the Native American stuff. You want to go over kind of the materials they use? Yeah. So we did this with the other civilizations we discussed in episode one. Uh, and it's fascinating to see the similarities and the differences that, that, uh, the different civilizations had in their archery equipment based on what they had available to them. So Native American bows were, um, like many of the others, made of a single piece of wood, uh, typically Osage orange, hickory, or ash. Um, And while many other ancient cultures used the composite bows made of several materials, um, made of several materials such as wood, horn, and and, and sinew, um, again, the Native Americans did not do that. It was was a single piece of wood. 
Native American bows were typically shorter and wider than, than other bows with a D-shaped cross-section, and that allowed for a shorter draw length and a higher draw weight, which made the, the, the bow more powerful. Um, you think to uh, you know, what, what you might need to, to successfully hunt the big game yeah. that were on the in North America here. at the time. Buffalo. You know, <laughs> Buffalo. Uh, depending on how far back you go, there's there are bigger uh Bigger cats. You know. Well, they found the that they found a saber tooth tiger and somewhere in I think it was in California in a cave, and it had a Native American arrowhead inside of it. Yeah, someone had shot a saber tooth tiger, Badass. and it ran into a cave and died there. So cool. And they're like, humans didn't exist when cyber tooth. Fucking so cool, man. <laughs> That's why. Oh, want to yeah. go back in time and do that? Um, they'd probably die, but it'd be okay. Yeah, it would definitely die. We'll make it <laughs> um, so let's see. Um, well, the arrows also they were. Yeah. They were made from reeds or canes instead of wood. Yep, which is kind of smart because they're those are going to be straight just and by default, readily available. Yeah, right? everywhere. A, a lot of them, you know, uh, depending on what they were growing and farming, or even if they weren't, those things grow naturally all over the place. So, mm-hmm. um, while other cultures used archery for hunting and warfare, Native American archery is primarily used used for hunting and fishing. Um, they also used it for ceremonial purposes. Um, Archers during that time from, you know, Native Americans were very highly skilled, which we've, we've talked about, uh, shooting on the move, uh, particularly um, being able to shoot small game and, and shooting from, from horseback. None of those things are easy if you've ever tried shooting a squirrel that's been Hard. making a freaking ruckus all morning. Um, it's not, not easy to do. Yeah, I think it's in here somewhere, but they, they had they found different types of arrowheads. They basically had pointed like blunt ones because they, yeah. they needed the fur and stuff. They didn't right. want to put they holes didn't in the mess fur. It up. Yeah. So they were shooting with like blunt arrows as well to kind of stun the prey. Nice. Um, technique wise, Native American archery, you know, was was interesting in the fact that different tribes kind of developed different ways of hunting um, to solve some of the problems that they saw specifically. So, for example, Ap- Apache developed a technique of shooting around corners. Um, and while the pe- the Pueblo used a technique of shooting arrows from behind shields, um, you know, so just different ways of dealing with whatever it was they needed to to be able to do. Um, the Apache lived in the part of the country where there were a lot of mountains, uh, mm-hmm. things like that. So their it's- technique for shooting around corners was designed to help them, you know, shoot effectively in confined spaces and in the type of terrain you would see in canyons and caves and things like that. It was called bending the bow. Um, you want to describe it a little bit? Yeah. the To bend the bow, you basically you grip the bow with one hand and use the other hand to bend the bowstring. So you're, you're not pulling straight back. You're bowing it kind of towards the handle. And then you would aim at the tire at the, uh, whatever you're going to shoot it at. And then in that bent position, you would release the arrow, which would allow the tension to kind of push the bow forward or push the arrow forward. But because it has that sideward movement, it would kick the back end of the arrow out and the arrow would kind of drift like a car would drift a corner. That's kind of what the arrow was doing, but it, it, it gave him like a curved trajectory that you could bend corners and obstacles. So if you were shooting something that was hiding behind a rock, you could you could basically bend the arrow around the rock. Yeah. But the key uh, the key to the technique was the ability for the archers to kind of accurately judge the angle and distance they needed to hit their targets. But they would use it through like these narrow openings, and there's some pretty wild stories if you read about it. But they'd also have to compensate for the curvature of the arrow's path, which would cause drop. So if it if it wasn't aimed right, it would veer off. So yeah. like the technique would be, it would take a, a lot to skill and practice and master this technique. Yeah. But it was only used in specific situations where the warriors need to shoot around, like we said, corners or obstacles. Yeah. But it's still like it's it, there's a lot out there on it because it's a fascinating example of kind of the ingenuity and resourcefulness of the Native American archery techniques that they would use. Yeah. But yeah, it would take a long time to refine that skill. But it was developed over thousands of years to suit the needs of different tribes and the, and the regions that they were part of. And it was a, definitely a vital part of their culture yeah. and way of life. Yep. Yeah. I mean, as, as you know, as you know, most of us learn in school, Native Americans, they, the, the, the party that would go out and hunt was often the same party that would, would go to war. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- these guys were, were developing skills just, just like the other, you know, civilizations we discussed on last week's episode. Developing skills that were ne- necessary for bringing, you know, food back to put on the table, but also bring them back themselves you know, right. for, for more. So, um, being able to shoot the enemy before they have a clear line of sight <coughs> of you would yeah. definitely be an advantageous yeah, no, skill. No shit. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
that's something you see today in technology too. They develop cameras and stuff that go on weapons that you can poke them around a corner and, and be able to shoot without yeah. exposing yourself. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's funny how that's not new technology. It's been around. No, the idea is is the same. They just yeah. technology's made it. Yep, you know, fit whatever platforms we're we're fighting with today. Weapon systems. Mm-hmm. Weapon systems. They also did uh, put their horseback. Some of them, like the Comanche and the Sioux, they they were known for archery while on horseback. Yeah, but it was it gave them a huge advantage because they they you know they were living in the prairies and so they were able to get across the prairie pretty quickly to an enemy. Sure, and then attack them from horseback before they had the chance to react in any way. Yeah, but it's. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. Yeah, yeah. Thinking if your enemy can see you coming from a long way, your best bet is to be able to move quickly. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, being able to move quickly and use—if you have ever been out to that in that part of the country—you know that it's it's not completely flat. There's hills, so you have to use the terrain to your advantage. And being able to do so quickly, um, yep. I would imagine, be pretty damn uh, you know useful. So, a lot of the their warrior technology, like that, they were. Like some of the stuff you read is like the archer would create their bow. So they, they yeah. know what they like. They know. And so they were all a little bit different. Yeah. And how different is that today than in an operator, yeah. you know, right. customizing his. I like a forward his grip. His kit. He likes, you know? one likes a forward grip. One likes, you know, doesn't, you know, no grip at all. Yeah. Flip to side. You know, it's like there's. One likes to carry it one way. One yep. likes to carry another. One likes to put their fire, you know, their sidearm on their, their leg. Once it, one wants it on their chest. Yeah. <clears throat> but. It's all customized for the way that that warrior wants to fight and make mm-hmm. sure they come home. They uh, one of the techniques that I found that I liked. It's called flying birds. Yeah, this was cool. So that they would shoot the arrows in the air. Like some <laughs> of the things I read were they put stuff on the arrow, like as a like like uh, tassels or oh, okay to make like it decorations. Yeah. yeah, and so they'd shoot it up in the air, and then the enemy would look at it. And while they're looking at it, they'd plug them with like a real arrow. <laughs> and I was like, "That's pretty." Because uh, if you think about it, like so much, you're like, "What the hell is that?" And then you catch an arrow to the chest. It's like a it's like a non-explosive flashbang. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh look over here. Oh, pretty. <laughs> but I guess they would use it with animals too, uh, which okay. I found interesting because if, for sure, if you were to make it shaped like a weird bird or have those tassels on yeah. it and it didn't scare the animal, the animal would definitely look at it. So you, you could hide behind a tree. Lob yeah. this thing over, and it would get, grab the animal's attention, and then you could come out from behind the tree five feet away and hit them while they're not looking at you. Man, I wonder if I could throw some kind of streamer next time I'm in a deer stand. You know, it's it's uh it's because this is one of the reasons we wanted to do this because we were looking into what are we not doing today that that yeah. these people were doing because clearly for thousands of years they survived on hunting. Yeah, yeah. So they clearly. had to be good at it. So <laughs> what were they doing that we weren't doing? Yeah, and that's one of the many techniques that I found that that but it was just one of the most fascinating ones. That is cool. Yeah. Um. And and obviously, you know, we were talking about preparing for not just hunting but but war and um, another technique that is actually used today. We've we've had the opportunity to see in real life is, is shooting at moving targets. Yeah. Uh, so Native Americans would practice shooting at moving targets. They'd use balls uh, of grass and, and other lightweight objects as targets and would practice shooting while running or on horseback. But we've we've seen modern day you know warfighter yep. type you know, uh, demonstrations of this at the, uh, snipers unknown challenges this last yep. year with those moving targets, which was like little super, robots. That, yeah. Super high tech. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's cool to see the same. They like the ones there were so high tech that like, if you hit it in, in like an arm that it wouldn't go down, you right. had to hit it in like a vital critical, area. Critical yeah. area. Yeah. But it's, uh, it's interesting that they would ride on horseback and then people would roll balls of grass and they would have to shoot these moving targets while also moving on horseback. I mean, they, they must've just practiced warfare all day long. I, what else were they going to do? <laughs> That's true. It's not like they I had, mean, that is your job. They had no errands to run. They had, yeah. no, you know, they were, I'm sure there was, was there it? was daily life stuff to do, but jaws was everything playing in the movie theater. Right. Yeah. There yeah. was no, uh, no new album getting dropped today by, yeah. by some, you know, I don't know. They, they may have had an album know. drops. They, 
They had to have designated singers, I'm sure. Maybe so. Maybe. <laughs> not going to make any jokes. I can't, because, man. Uh, I, there's so many. I, yeah, I, I, I had a really good one lined up, but I'm not going to say it. Uh, Just because you never know. People, you never know. People these days. People can't take a joke. No. But uh, some of the techniques, because since we were talking about them Hunting already, yep. um, they're not very different from, from anyone else. I mean, it's kind of the same stuff, so it's... You know, still hunting. They were just kind of whatever. And then what I found cool was some of the things that we've been told about before for still hunting or stand hunting, rather, mm -hmm. is that uh, they actually still call it Indian style. When you just, when you walk out into the woods and you climb up a tree and you sit on a tree yeah. without a stand and like kind of hide yourself, uh, it's very common in these these lottery hunts. People will do it. They'll climb okay. up in these big oak trees and they'll just sit there. And it's called Indian style. Okay. That's the type of hunting it is. Um, so it was, it was cool to see that in the research that that it's legit. Yeah, I did not know that. Yep. Um, other stuff that they do, or you know, stuff we still see today, uh, drives, right? So um, using people and groups of hunters to drive animals towards a, either a waiting ambush. We've seen them drive them off of cliffs to their yeah. death, and then they go down and, and harvest the animals or finish them off. Um, and then flushing. You know, using dogs and other animals to flush prey out of hiding places is the same thing we see with uh, with dogs today. Yeah. One of the wild things about the drives that still most people are aware of this fact now, but if you aren't, you're going to love this. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they believe that the animals kind of talk to each other. So if they found a herd of bison, they had like then they were doing a drive. They would push the whole entire herd off this cliff. Mm hmm intentionally because they didn't want them to tell the other bison what was going on. They no survivors. So there's no way for them to eat all that meat. And a lot of times the stuff, it would just sit there and rot. And there's places in America that you can look up. If you just Google like Indian bison drive mountain cliff, something yeah. um, it, that decaying flesh at the base of the cliff would get so hot in the sun that it caught fire and would burn for days. And, and wow. you can see it still today. These like black char marks up the sides of these cliffs. No kidding. You didn't know that? No. Oh yeah, yeah. You can Google it. It's a uh, it's a real thing. But they would just they would they would leave all that rotting carcass there. Yeah. And uh, take what they needed, I guess. Sure. But, I mean, if, if you figure figure a herd of a hundred bison, I mean, how many are you really going to take for yeah. your tribe? I guess not that many. But you can see it. There's like the there's just black soot all over mm -hmm. the fronts of these of these cave of huh. these uh, cliffs. Oh, we'll have to definitely check that out. Yeah, did not it's know a that. Pretty interesting technique. And then uh, you know, if you get on YouTube, you're you're and you look up bow fishing, you're you're bound to find you know a couple dozen redneck YouTube channels that <laughs> yeah. are you know showing some fun bow fishing. Um, and Native Americans were doing that, you know, in in the rivers and streams that they had access to. So it's nothing it's nothing new either. Yeah, they actually they made specialized arrows with fish hooks on them. Yeah, just had, just to, just for fish. A barb, just like a fish hook has, yeah. uh, just to catch the to you know stick in the keep the arrow from coming out of the fish. God, mm -hmm. And I think they would just shoot them. Everything I read was like they, they didn't have like today. Our bow fishing has like a string on it and a reel, and you reel the fish in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But everything I read here was like they they would shoot the fish with the arrow and then essentially jump in the river and. And grab the and arrow, grab it yeah, and pull it up. I imagine in most cases they're doing that in shallow water. Yeah, for and it's sure. probably it's probably pinning it for the most part. But yeah, yeah, no string to reel them in here. Mm -mm. But that was just a few examples of the different types of Native American hunting techniques and archery skills. Uh, each it's 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 a rabbit hole because each tribe had like unique approach to hunting, and a lot of these techniques were passed down through generations and generations. But yep. it's. It's a lot to read the different types that they were doing. I just grabbed a couple that I found that I found fascinating. Very cool. So, um, you know, we're talking about Native Americans in North America. Um, so, you know, the next sort of period would is, is going to be for the United States, um, sort of the colonial period. Um, you know, archery was still being used there during that time for hunting, obviously, as well as for military purposes. Um, and in fact, the Virginia colonial government mandated that all males age 14 and older uh, we're supposed to practice archery every week as a way of uh, defense against Native American attacks. Yeah, and just to put a date on there so you can think about when that was, that was in 1622 that mandate came out. So 1622, the colonialists were fighting Native Americans with archery. Practice your archery, folks. Yeah. <laughs> but kind of moving into the 19th century, archery became pretty popular sport and pastime into the upper classes and it's particularly in women and when you look up some of this 
old footage of it, you'll see these these women in like the colonial giant dresses, yeah. shooting archery, and it's it's pretty funny. Out in the at. garden, yeah. It's just it was funny, but it, it was mainly done as a way to improve health and physical fitness. Yeah. But the um, archery clubs and tournaments became popular through the country, and the sport even made an appearance in the Olympic Games in 1900 and in 1904. Wow. Very cool. But there's not a whole lot on it up until kind of what started us on this journey here was uh, World War II. Yep. So archery, it was an important role in training. Uh, soldiers were trained for hand, uh, physical fitness, but also for hand-eye coordination, which was important for yeah. warfare. And it, it continues today to kind of be an archery thing for competition, sport, and, and some people use it for hunting, and that's and that's kind of it. But technology today, and why is it that way? I mean, they yeah. one of the podcasts that we had listened to in preparation for this, the guy was saying he was like a PhD, like a smart guy. I don't yeah, remember his name. I don't either. He was saying that we we knew more about archery like in the 1700s than we do today yeah. because the technology changed so much during World War II. Uh, but it's basically because of the development of new materials. So during the war, the traditional materials such as wood and animal sinew became scarce and expensive, and it prompted for the new materials of archery equipment. For example, they would laminate wood and fiberglass to make bow limbs, and nylon replaced the traditional materials for bowstrings. But the big deal here was they were making pretty much everything out of metal back then. Yeah. So they started making arrows out of metal. And what did that do? It made them extremely heavy. Right. And then you're throwing these metal broadheads on it. And now a traditional bow just can't. Nope. You can't shoot it. So you got to have some more power behind that bow to get that arrow where it needs to go uh, accurately. And so sister technology had to change to, to compensate for that. Right. Um, it's crazy to, to to see how you know how the technology has not only changed, but like how it's gotten more expensive. Way more um, expensive. I've got I. Um, do you know you know who? Uh, oh, his, his name is T. They call him T Bone. Um, yes. Uh, he posted a picture of an old old receipt. I want to say it was early '90s or late '80s of a full from a bow shop for a full bow build, like purchased. Put together all everything. It was like two hundred and fifty bucks. Wow! Yeah, for a compound bow with with all the all, all the pieces, parts t- tuned and set up. You're like at a thousand dollars today for just a stripped bow. Yeah, like that's <laughs> from an archery that's shop. That's no sight. That's nothing yeah. set up for you. That's yeah, just thousand bucks probably. That's crazy. Yeah, it was pretty cool. But um, yeah. So after you know after as as World War Two, you know um progressed and you know the t- technology surrounding the arrows and, and and everything sort of changed um the the modern advancements never stopped it's continued to evolve as i as we just discussed it's gotten more expensive well but, in the so with the just a se- good segue into kind of the modern stuff is a- after the war because of these heavier arrows they created what's called the compound bow in the 1960s which was a major breakthrough um, it gave the archers the ability to shoot with greater accuracy and consistency and then lug these giant arrows th- through the sky and into a target. Yes. Sorry, it's the second time I've missed a date, which is important for these references. It's all um, good. But, yeah, so with the development of the compound bows to be able to move those heavier arrows, um, that's where we started to see these modern advancements that have not stopped you know, since then. And every year, you know, it's the same thing. A new bow from, the, from, from every yeah. company. Whether it's really anything major or not, it's it's new. They got to compete. They got to put a new style, a new technology, new this, new that. Um, it's honestly crazy if you think about it. Well, it's it's not a car. No, but <laughs> and it's and like they they convince you, try to convince you that you got to spend fifteen hundred dollars or two thousand dollars this year too. Well, it makes it so hard not to kill buy a, a bow because it's like. What what did you change from last year? You know, and then you're like, well, I don't really the care name? about that. Well, then what? You know, it's got red strings on it now. Okay, so I can buy the one last year. It's like, yeah, well, these new strings are, <laughs> you know, going to last sixty days longer yeah. than the old strings. These cams are two millimeters thinner. Yeah, which allows a faster release. <laughs> it's like, well, the one I have now is about seven years old, and it releases pretty fast. Yeah. And they're Three, like, yeah, well, this this one's three hundred fifty feet per second. I, yeah, I didn't realize deer ran that fast. Yeah, <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like I don't. I want it to kind of stay in though. I don't want to blow through it. Well, it's uh, yeah, it's you know, so it's like you don't know. It's really hard. That's why buying a bow is is 
very if you don't if you're not into it, it's yeah. very difficult to to. It's overwhelming, I guess. Yeah, it, to it, look it, at it and go, geez, what do I buy? Yeah, it is. It is overwhelming. Uh, they, that's they don't why release I, one bow a year; they release ten bows oh, a year. There's got yeah, yeah. they got three or four you know that come out from each major manufacturer during um uh, around ata yeah and that's when most of them do their big announcement and it's like they have three or four one is meant for more for hunting one's more for competition shooting one's for one's women for, one's for kids yeah they've got this and that and maybe you like a bow with this kind of brace height or maybe you're taller or maybe you're yeah. smaller so you need this or that and it's just like holy shit i don't know where to start yeah and then everywhere I do start, it's like, well, I don't want to pay $900 for that right now. Yeah. You got to find like a good archery shop that you trust and has good reviews and just go in there and tell the guy like, here's my budget, man. Yeah. I want to get into archery. I want to get into bow hunting. This is, this, this is my budget. What can we do? And yeah. the guy will be like, you're not going to get into it for that. Or he'll say, this is what we can do. This is what you. we can do. Yeah. And, um, but yeah. And then and my suggestion is find a, find a bow you like, get it set up the way you like it and stick with it for and, until you, it's obsolete and you just can't shoot anymore because there's no need to spend thousands of dollars every year you can kill the deer you know if you didn't kill yeah. any deer this year or last year with your fifteen hundred dollar bow spending two thousand dollars isn't going to make you a no. better hunter no no and just uh we've so this whole history thing we've been talking about kind of recurve bows and, and like i said in the 60s they came out with the compound bow and just said i know most of us know what it is but in case you don't Compound bow is a system of kind of pulleys and cables, and it they, they're used to reduce the amount of force needed to hold the bowstring back. Yep. So it helps you hold the bow back or hold the string back and aim and shoot accurately, and you're not getting kind of muscle fatigue trying to hold a recurve back. Yep. But they're also typically way faster and more powerful than traditional bows. Yep, and, and they've and they've taken that that same uh, Technology and implemented in into crossbows, and so yeah. now you're seeing crossbows getting smaller, more compact, and, and you know able to shoot mm -hmm. fist sized groups at 200 yards, which is with a, with a crossbow, <laughs> which is un unbelievable. It's a gun at that point, but the, they're also reducing kind of the weight in the arrows, and, and a lot of them now are carbon fiber. Yep, um, mainly because it's lightweight and it's durable, which it gives you obviously greater accuracy and consistency in flight. And then, have you ever used an electronic? Sight? No, I've seen the I've seen the Garmin that came out a few yeah. years ago, um, but no, I haven't. I, I haven't. haven't I haven't used one. It's they're they're pricey for mm -hmm. one, and my luck, the battery would be dead. It just we've talked about this with with other technology and hunting. I just feel like the electronic sight that it does your it does yeah. your yardage for you. It adjusts the pin for you. You're taking the you're taking the hunting skill right, and, and the mindset and the thought process and the knowledge. Like there's something to be said for a hunter that is able to, and has the, the capability of sitting in a stand, identifying their quarry, understanding the distance. How's the wind doing? How's that going to affect my arrow flight? You know, which pin do I need to use? Especially like on a single pin, you're pinned at 30 yards. Yeah. And to be able to use a sink, you're sighted in at 30 yards and you're guessing this deer is, Right, twenty yards from you, or being even, able to shoot it with yeah. a thirty-yard pin, guessing that it's twenty yards. I mean, it's even if you I, use a handheld, skill. a handheld rangefinder for sure. Yeah. I, I do, which I do, yeah. But even with a single pin, you're gonna you're gonna still look at how how do you how does your bow shoot at elevation, right? Because yeah. you should have practiced your shot with your bow from at, a tree. if you're at twenty feet or thirty yeah. feet or saddle, whatever you're doing. What adjustments do you need to make? You know, it's at thirty yards or forty yards. So do I? You know, you make your adjustment and then and then shoot and the Garmin takes all that out of it. Like yeah. you get it sighted in and then you're able to put the pin on the object. It range, it ranges it using a laser makes all the adjustments for you. And you just pull back. So at that point you're just a really good target shooter. Yeah. So I feel like you've taken all the, a lot of the, the hunting part out. I mean, you still have woodsmanship and, and, and being good enough to get into a stand and get deer that close to you. But I also wonder if deer can see it because I, I've, I don't know if you've ever noticed it before, but if you go to take a picture of something in daylight, like an insect, yeah, like there's, I've seen videos of it on um, social media about it too. But like the insect will freak out, like while you're trying to, like while it's focusing, because what it's doing is blasting a signal out to the object you're taking a photo of, and it's coming back and it's telling the camera how to adjust aperture. Yeah, and these animals can see it, so I always wonder if like a electronic bow sight. If when it blasts out oh, that, it's doing something like yeah. that. I wonder if, if anybody's done any kind of it. research with that. That's fascinating to think about. Yeah, because we we were talking about the other day um, 
was that certain birds or insects, you know, and the fact that they see other colors. Yeah. So when you use certain technologies that emit those colors or emit those, um, those radio frequencies, mm-hmm. you know, it, it has an impact on, on other animals. I mean, we're learning more and more today about how things like cell phones and these other things that emit have the effect they have on, on yeah. us. So imagine a tiny little creature. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's, uh, I know I've not used one. I use a rangefinder. Um, but a lot of times I, I don't like the extra movement of having to pull up a range finder. So right. usually what I do is get in stand and I range two or three trees or objects. Thing. So I know, okay, that's, that's there. That's there. So if they walk in this range, I'm going to use this pin and, uh, you know, yep. hold a little high, hold a little low, whatever, yeah. you know, whatever you got to do. But, uh, and then me- mechanical broadheads, this is always a fun conversation. And th- this, this topic gets, can get very heated, um, and, and very polarizing. So but much so that I don't even do it anymore. Nope. It's <laughs> not a, uh, it is not a discussion that I, that I like to have. Um, I think I still have some mechanical broadheads, uh, on my, my bow right now. Um, I can't remember. I, got I think I switched back. I think I switched back after our elk hunt. I think I have some, but they're not on, uh, they're not on any of my arrows. Cause we used fixed blade. When we went on our elk hunt and I don't think I've switched back since. I haven't. The problem with it is, is people that use mechanical broadheads are, are, it's like it's like debating religion. Like you're just not gonna. Yeah. There's just no way through it, and it's like I choose to not. I like I like as we just talked about all this ancient technology. Like the mechanical broadheads, the chance of them failing is pretty high. Yeah. They certainly also, can. they are so clean that it doesn't really do a lot of damage, and it's, and it's not a guaranteed kill. Yeah. And then people are like, no, my hypodermics will. You know, I get you. I get. It. I I, I've shot. I've shot those too. Yeah, we get it. We've done it. It's but but the. Just the truth of it is people have been using double bevel arrowheads for thousands of years. Yeah. And it has worked for thousands of years. And the technology today, like we're getting ready to have um, VPA on to talk about. Yeah. Yep. Do we have a date for that? I believe it is. Uh, yeah, we do have a date for it. Yeah, I just yeah. don't know offhand. Yeah. Um, we're going to have them on to talk about some of the broadhead technology that they're, you know, selling and that they're involved in. And it's I find it very fascinating. And I, and I I don't know if they sell mechanical. I'm sure they do. I I, th- I think I saw looked at their their lineup, and I don't I don't think they do. I should, I we should look that up. Be- I shoot their double bevels. Yeah, we will. Yeah, I shoot their double double yeah. bevels. I bought them. I bought them last couple yeah. years ago. But yeah, it's it's some good stuff, and they have a great name in the industry. So that that'll be a fun conversation as well. Um, and kind of the last point here was that there's different types of apps available for archery today um, that didn't exist. Obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine but, if the uh, Native Americans would just pull up a weather app and be like, uh, it's, yep. not, it's not a good day, guys. Right. Let's, let's, let's help around camp. <laughs> but they get, the tablets, they can help you with techniques. So if you're trying to learn how to hunt, there's, I, didn't, yeah. I didn't want to pitch any, but you can, uh, you can find them. And, it, and it'll help you learn techniques and connect with other archers, and you can track your progress and see how well you're doing. Yeah. But these modern advancements of archery made it more accessible and enjoyable for people of all skill levels. Yep. And uh, it's also helped to increase the interest in the sport. Yeah, which is which is good. It just feels like you see like Black Rifle Coffee posts a lot. The guy doing trick archery shots. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I see a lot more archery stuff today than I think I've ever seen. Yeah, I don't. It, it's you know, they say that hunting numbers for hunt hunters are declining uh, year by year. So if there's things that we can do to attract folks into the space, even if it just starts with archery or just starts with target shooting. Yeah, you know, uh, whether it's archery or firearms uh getting people into space and interested because then from there you know they have an interest in archery or, or shooting you know or target shooting with with a, with a firearm you know there's you've eliminated the biggest hurdle for most people in hunting which is the method of take and, mm-hmm. and, and if they're comfortable with that then um it gives folks an opportunity to explore hunting and, and those possibilities and people like us to open that up for them and allow them the opportunity to try that a little easier right. with a for sure with that barrier of entry kind of removed but um yeah that's part two of our archery ancient archery series um it's the end of yeah sorry that's the second part uh part two <laughs> the second half um if you liked it let us know if you have a topic you want us to deep dive on let us know and the best way to do that is just go ahead and leave a five-star review and whatever app you're using and then leave a comment in there like hey you guys should do this topic leave in leave a five-star review specifically in the podcast app yes that you use we've had uh, I've since we've started kind of 
asking for this, um, which we appreciate. You guys have we have seen some five star reviews come in on our website. Yeah, uh, but we need we we really need them in the uh, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the places where you're listening. Um, that that helps us out a ton. So yes, uh, we know you're listening. We see the numbers. We we thank you guys very much for your support. Um, in order to to grow this thing and get it in front of more people, so that we can continue to get you. More cool content, more guests, and things like that. We just we need those uh, need the metrics. Yeah, we need the metrics and the and, and the reviews. So uh, thank you guys for all the support and everything you do uh, already. So if if, um, if you've done that already, thank you. If not, um, you know we would greatly appreciate it. And don't forget, you can use code podcast on the website to get twenty percent off. And um, that's all that I had. Okay. Well, now that that's out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> what do you? Uh, I was going to talk about the weekend. Oh yeah, yeah. What do you got going on this weekend? So it's uh it's for those that don't know, I was a car guy for many 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 years and um, still kind of like into it, but you know, but I probably might show some. Uh, there should be some good. You're more into adulting. Yeah, I can't afford cars anymore, <laughs> which is crazy, right? It's like a I I don't know how I afforded cars back then. I guess that was all I really did was cars. But this weekend we're going. I'm going to something called Wookies in the Woods, and for those that don't know. Which is probably everyone except <laughs> maybe like except you Brian right now. <laughs> Brian. Brian Powers knows. Uh, so the, it's what the reason it's called this is the the Mark IV, which is a Volkswagen, the R32. It has a 3.2 liter motor in it, and it sounds like a Wookie. A Wookie, yeah. So I have like a little clip, exhaust clip, so you can hear it, so it makes sense. <laughs> So imagine it growls a thousand of those <laughs> ripping through uh, the Dragon's Tail in Tennessee. That's what this weekend is. So it's it's going to oh, be a lot of drive fun. the Dragon's Tail. Oh yeah. Oh. So Andy's brother. Now the conversation with Andy's brother and the yeah. car makes sense. Andy's brother has an R32. So I was like, let me borrow it for the weekend, and he was like, don't, <laughs> don't get on it, don't break it. It's got a new clutch. Got to be easy with the clutch. I'm like, yeah, all that. All that, man. all that. It's dude. fine, bro. You know me. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna beat on the car, man. <laughs> I don't drive fast. I don't drive fast. I'm not going to the Dragon's Tail this weekend in it. You know, like, don't worry about it. But uh, I think there's gonna be some good accidents. And think so, so yeah, because it, it's it's it's, you know, people come out to these things and they have never driven like that before. And, and like they this, can just this, hop on there and yeah. And I've been on Dragon's Tail many times. It, it is not an easy road it's not for the faint of heart and it's not for sightseeing if you if you're out there sightseeing you, you're gonna somebody might run you off the road or get, get pissed at you yeah like you need to be the only thing you should be looking at is what's in front of you and you should be trying to get through it as quick as possible but you you want to do two or three laps before you really start yeah you know going and so andy was like i will go for your warm-up lap she's like, i'm not going anymore after that i'm like okay so, so is it, it – explain what the Dragon's Tail is for people who have never It is a it. public road yeah. that, in Tennessee, and it's hairpin turn after hairpin turn for several miles. And it's um, it's kind of like a car enthusiast, you know, track day. There's a lot of woods out there, so yeah. if you run off the road, you're probably going to hit a wood. But there, but, a wood. <laughs> but there are spots that, that you don't want to run off the road yeah. there. But the problem with it is not necessarily going to be you. It's going to be the other people. So there's, there's, they always say keep it between the mayo and the mustard. So the yellow and the white line. Don't get in the other lane. Yeah. But people are stupid and yeah. they'll come around a corner in the other lane and you're coming around the corner in your lane doing 40, 50 miles an hour. It's usually motorcycles. Motorcycles, they can't, they don't turn right. Yeah. They don't bend enough or lean in hard, lean hard enough coming into a turn and they, they slip over to the keep line. from laying it down as yeah. you just go across the line. Yep. And all the advice tells you, like, do not react. Whatever yeah. you're doing, you keep doing what you're doing. Let someone hit you. Because if you react, you're going to fall off the mountain. Yeah. Or you're, you're going to make it worse. Sure. Like, Because I know on a motorcycle, if I'm getting ready to wreck, which I've done uh, a few times, if I'm getting ready to lay this thing down, I already know how I'm going to do it. Yeah. So I'm looking at you going, I'm about to hit you. I'm going to get off before I hit you, but I'm going to hit you. Right. Well, if you slam on the brakes or turn you throw all that you could, off yeah you could screw it all up so yeah. so don't you know if someone's screwing up that's on them let them screw up you just keep doing what you're doing yeah and, that, and, the, and people don't know that so mm -hmm. people react i mean it's it's a natural well, reaction that's, well that and that's racing yeah like if you're on a track and you're racing right, right like if people are but no one's coming at you head on, on a track. that's true that's, you're also <laughs> correct right yeah. like but the, the principle is the same you focus on you if you get hit you get bumped you get run yeah the, 
it happens. It happens. Just keep rolling. You just got to focus on what you're doing, man. Do that's like, so how does this work? Like, is everybody just going whatever order they want? Is it just open? They have like organized drives. It's it's like 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. It's just mayhem. So no. I'm going to do, I probably won't do, we're driving up Friday. I probably am just going to hang out yeah. and have some cocktails and, and, and cook food Friday. Saturday morning, I'm probably going to get up at the crack of dawn and go go run my trial. Yeah, go run my times, take Andy up once, and then drop her off somewhere like in a cool spot. With um, I rented cameras and lenses and stuff. Cool. Um, so we have two cameras going up, uh, all the GoPros and all that stuff. And yeah. then um, I'm going to run the track and just have her somewhere filming. But once 10, 8, 10 a.m. comes and, and the road starts getting busy, the smart thing is to find a parking lot where other other guys, are other at guys are at, and you just hang out with the guys, and you watch cars come by all day. Yeah. And it's and that's the whole point. It was just to watch. You just watch people rip up and down this hill. And yeah, it's uh, are, the, are the the spots where you're watching? Can you see a good portion of the road, or is it like sitting on an F one race where you're like, corner. yeah, that, yeah that's it. <laughs> okay, sitting in a corner, and all the good corners, like the wrecking corners, those are all going to be taken up pretty quickly because people want to watch people. Yeah, wreck people want to watch it. Are there, like, are, there, are there people there who are just like like doing this and just show up with like a paramedic bag and are just there to help out? You know, no, but I am. I'm bringing mine. Yeah, I would. I'm bringing. I'm bringing three or four tourniquets and, and for sure some basic stuff. And I'm bringing <laughs> my uh, my nasal thing and my my chest decompression stuff. So. Yeah, just you know, worst case, absolute worst case stuff. Otherwise, sit still, don't move. EMS will be here. Yeah, they'll be here <laughs> soon. You're screaming. He doesn't need me. <laughs> if you're making that much noise, you're gonna make it. Yeah. No, That's it's. I, it's. I don't know that it's gonna be that bad, but it's. There will be. There are 100 gonna be. Yeah. Accidents. Well. Be safe, man. Have fun, though. It sounds yeah, like a good it'll time. Be a good time. I'm excited for it. You gonna do any? Uh, how cl- are you gonna be close to any of the distilleries in Tennessee? I don't know. No. I didn't even look. Probably won't have time. No, but yeah, I'm not gonna do it. This is yeah. a car weekend. So car weekend. But I might post some of the stuff on Instagram so people are like, "What is going on here?" But yeah. we may have like car followers we didn't know about. Hey, that'd be cool. I know we got some motorcycle people out there. Shout out to them. Yeah. Would you do that in, in a motorcycle? I have. You've done Dragon Sail motorcycle? This is the first time I've ever done it in a car. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah. Yep. What kind of bike were you on? Uh, a GSXR 1000, and I did it on a 750. Scary? I, no, um, no. No? Sounds it's, scary. I mean, the the turning thing, if you're don't, if you if you leaned into a turn and you have to immediately sit up and lean into another turn, that's scary because sometimes you can't get to it and you're, and you're going too fast and you're like, you can't turn the wheel, you got to lean. So you got to stand up the bike and, and lean back. And then the lean direction. back the other direction. And it, that, that can be, that's yeah. challenging. They make it look easy in the pros. Yeah, they do. <laughs> have you seen the sidecar racing? Dude, that wild. I didn't even know what to respond to that. Wild. The, the, the guy never like seen that laying down yeah. and then standing up to lean over to yeah, help to the guy help turn. Just nuts. He's not strapped in anything. No. He's just, it's like a chariot and he's just and laying he, in he it. he fucking wrecks, he's done. Yeah, he's super dead. And he keeps his head down. He's not even looking. So if something bad happens, a surprise. Fucked. Yeah. <laughs> it just seems like. I sent it to somebody and he was like, you just ruined my whole night because I'm going to I'm gonna have to watch this all night long. Now. Well, and, and th- my, my thing is. Um. I almost thought it was a joke yeah. at first. I have done Dragon's Tail in a car, now that I think about it. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Nice. Anyway, yeah. No, I thought it was a joke, too, because it looks silly. It looks, it looks the like there's no, n- there's no way that this is remotely safe. Yeah. I, I just, like, who, who signed off on that? And I don't know, like, but I like it. This is cool. Let's definitely do this. Yeah. I'm excited. Approved. <laughs> oh, man. All right. All right. Well, well, that was fun. Always is. I'm glad I learned all this archery stuff. Hopefully somebody um, wants to know more about it to make it worth their time. Yeah, if you if you don't like that archery stuff, just let us know. If you're like, hey, don't don't do that ever again. Then give us some ideas of what you want us to do. Yeah, easy easy day. We're down. All right. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.